0: Well, hey, Harvest, thank you for uh, tuning in and watching us online. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. We are going to be at the end of chapter one, picking it up in verse 27. So Philippians 1, uh, 27 through the end of the chapter this morning. While you guys are turning there, um, I just wanna give you a little bit of an update. If you've attended Harvest for any length of time, one of the things that you know that we stress and that we feel is very, very important in our Christian walk and in our Christian faith is that we are plugged into a local church or a local body of believers. And you've probably heard me preach before or to say that the New Testament really knows nothing of a disconnected follower of Jesus, that the church, and the followers and the believers that we see throughout the New Testament are always connected and engaged with their local church. And uh, in this season, you can understand why that is a dilemma because we have been unable to gather um, corporately kind of on a weekly basis just due to this global pandemic. And um, as your pastor, I just want you to know that in this season, in this trial that we find ourselves in, I understand and, and I'm praying about this um, concern that I have that in this season, not being as connected as we normally would be, that we would have a tendency to stagnate in our walk with Jesus Christ, that we would begin to um, drift uh, in our convictions and in our habits and in our disciplines. And I would just encourage you in this season, be very, very intentional in your walk with Jesus Christ, and in your efforts to get together with other followers of Jesus and people that encourage you in your walk in the faith. And though we can't gather weekly in this season as a church, that doesn't mean that the church is not functioning. And if you find yourself in a season where you say, listen, I can feel myself drifting, I can feel myself stagnating in my faith, I would encourage you get in contact with someone from the church, someone in your small group, your small group leader, or just even someone on staff or in our biblical soul care, because we want to make sure that in this season, as we all go through this trial together, that we are um, remaining firm in our convictions and in our walk with Jesus Christ. And that kind of leads us as a backdrop, even into the passage that we're looking at um, today as we kind of open to the end of Philippians. When we decided to go through the book of Philippians, we were saying, boy, this is a season where we can really get into this book and get after its main theme, which is the joy of following Jesus Christ. But I look at the specific verses that we're looking at um, in this session has actually been a godsend, a provision from God as we endure this season of difficulty. And um, what we get to do is just jump into four verses that I think hit us. Exactly where we live today. So I'm going to just read the passage that we're going to be looking at um, during this session. Let me start in verse 27 of 1st Philip or in Philippians 1. It says this: only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or to see and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So just uh, as a quick review, Paul is writing a letter to the Philippians. He is in prison, he is suffering. The church in Philippi is also under heavy fire. They are experiencing more than just a trial. They are experiencing persecution for following Jesus. And as Paul is in prison suffering and as the church is suffering in Philippi, we get to kind of peek in on this conversation that they're having. And the thing that they're talking about is joy. Last week, Nate preached and just quoting from verse 21 of Philippians, it says this, It says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then Paul goes on and says, but to remain in the flesh as he considers whether he would prefer to be dead or alive, he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And then verse 25, for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul seems to be willing to trade the things that we hold most dear, the the ideas of justice and security and comfort for the sake of advancing the gospel. And 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 now we get the opportunity to look uh, at Paul, a person who is suffering, writing to a church that is suffering, and we get to hear their conversation as they discuss the joy that they have in spite of the persecution that they're enduring in following their Savior, Jesus Christ. Some of the things that I'm going to say this morning, I'm just going to be really honest with you, they're going to be difficult to hear. But... I believe these verses kind of hold the key to unlocking the joy that not only Paul, but Jesus would like us to experience as one of his followers. The big idea this morning is simply this. Joy is not stolen by persecution, but by drifting. Let me say that again. Joy is not stolen by persecution, but by drifting. So here's the first point this this morning. It's this. Paul's charge that we live lives that are worthy of the gospel. He says in verse 27, "'Only let your manner of life be worthy "'of the gospel of Christ.'" And and Paul, if you look throughout the New Testament, he's using this language, this idea of being worthy of the gospel in many of his different letters. To the Ephesians, he writes in Ephesians 4.1, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, he was in prison, was he wrote to the church in Ephesus as well. He says this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. To the church in Colossae, he says this in verse one, um, or verse nine of chapter one, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we read, Paul writes, walk in a manner worthy of God. And I'm just gonna tell you, when I see that phrase, walk in a manner worthy of God or worthy of the gospel, often my first response is that I'm not energized by that command. I'm actually feeling ashamed because of that command. Like how in the world can any of any of us walk worthy of of the gospel or the good news or the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. I thought the whole point of the gospel was to show us that there was no way that we could be worthy to earn our own salvation, that we were completely unable to be worthy of our own salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were following a world that was ruled by Satan, that we lived according to the passions of the flesh, that we were by nature children of wrath. And then it says in verse four, the glorious good news of the gospel, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, it says that he made us alive together with Christ. He, by grace, we have been saved through faith and that he has raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if I'm to believe my life is a way that I can show myself worthy of the gospel, I feel like, quite honestly, sometimes that's associated with shame. I feel like I can't live up to how I've been called to live and nothing steals my joy more than when I know that I am constantly failing I was thinking back when I was 30 years old, that's all the way back in 1994, I was starting my real estate career, and I was doing investments for my wife's family, and the first building that I acquired was located in Naperville, Illinois, and that was a building that had some vacancy, and I thought there was an opportunity that if we could get more tenants into the building, that could be a very profitable investment for us, but we were about six months into owning that building, and I became aware, maybe I should have known this before I bought the building, but the major tenant in the building, the the tenant that occupied 25% of the building had um, affiliations with organized crime. It it turned out that my major tenant was the mob, and that created a reluctance for other companies to want to locate in our building. Uh, Major fail. And then in that season in 1994, Cal would have been eight, my daughter, Catherine, five, my youngest son, Christopher, two. We were in the throes of having three young kids and I was finding myself um, on the road a lot traveling. I was going back and forth to Hawaii um, almost every month. I was going back and forth to Japan several times a year. And I was in this season where the real estate wasn't going good. I felt like I was gone so much that I was failing as a father. I was failing as a husband, And I'm just telling you in that season, when you're constantly confronted that you're falling short in so many different ways, it's very, very hard to say in seasons like that, that I'm having my joy. But I want to encourage you, Paul is not telling us to walk worthy of the gospel to demoralize us. And it might be easier for you to see this if you look at the Greek language in its kind of original word order. In essence, what Paul is saying, if I were to, translate this just word for word. He says, only worthy of the gospel of Christ live his citizens. The emphasis is on living his citizens in the original Greek. And the idea is that we don't earn our citizenship. Our citizenship was earned for us by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Later in Philippians in chapter three, verse 20, Paul actually say, but our citizenship is in heaven. And the the church in Philippi would have understood this immediately. Philippi was a colony of Rome and and as a colony of Rome, the, the citizens of Philippi enjoyed the benefits of being citizens of Rome. So what Paul is telling this church in Philippi, these Roman citizens is even more so than your Roman citizenship and the privileges that you enjoy because of that, walk in a manner that is reflective of the fact that your citizenship is actually in heaven, that you are citizens, that you are members of a different kingdom, a greater kingdom, a a, a heavenly kingdom. That should be the foundation for our joy. So the command or what Paul is urging us to do is live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Here's a great question. How do we do that? How do we live our lives in a manner that is worthy? And Paul gets very, very specific. Look what he says in the next verse. The first thing that he points us to is this idea of standing firm. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Now, standing firm obviously means that we are holding our ground against opposition. Uh, it would bring together the picture, the analogy of a soldier standing his post, standing guard, making sure that no enemy can penetrate a fortress. It has the idea of standing for something and against something at the same time that as followers of Jesus Christ were called to stand for truth and against falsehood, that we stand for justice and against injustice, for righteousness and against sin. Paul is talking about standing firm constantly in his letter to the churches in the New Testament, and I won't go Uh, take the time to go through all of them. But he writes to the Ephesians in chapter six several times, stand firm. He writes the same thing to the church in Thessalonica, to Philippians, constantly saying, stand firm. John is not the only one that pounds this drum of standing firm to the followers of Jesus Christ. John in the book of Revelation will write seven letters to seven churches in chapters two and three. And to every church, he puts this phrase into his letter, be an overcomer, be an overcomer, the idea of standing firm. Jesus will say in Matthew 24, in Mark 13 and in Luke 22, to the one who endures to the end, that's the person that will be saved. Standing firm is this idea of holding to our convictions without compromise, not allowing ourselves to drift, to to stagnate. It involves action. It's not just a philosophical conviction and the choice to stand firm is rooted in the gospel and what Jesus Christ has accomplished in our lives. And one of the rewards that we have when we choose to stand firm, to follow uh, Paul's command here is we experience joy the joy that we honored our convictions, the joy that we held firm the life lived without regrets. So he begins and says a a, a life that is lived in a manner that is worthy of the gospel is a life where we stand firm. The second thing we see is this, that we strive forward. He goes on with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And while standing firm speaks to holding your ground, um, striving implies that we're, taking new territory. I'm gonna butcher the Greek language for you here, but that word striving is actually a compound Greek word. It's two words smashed together. It is soon athleo. And that word soon is with, and athleo is where we get our word athletics. So the picture is that you're gonna strive forward like an athlete for the sake of the gospel if you're willing to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It brings to mind The idea of a team or a in in, in an analogy, a football team. You're standing firm. That's when you're on defense, you're not allowing the other team to get into your end zone. You are stopping them from advancing the ball against your defense. But now you've got this word striving. That's the offensive picture that says, now I'm not just standing firm and holding the other team from scoring, but I'm going to advance the ball. I'm going to get it into their end zone. I'm going to push the gospel forward. It's the... Commitment to the great commission that we're going to go to all ends of the world, preaching the gospel and making disciples. Living as citizens that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ involves standing firm. It also involves striving to advance the gospel. And then we see a third point that Paul makes in verse 28, this idea of being fearless as followers of Jesus Christ. He says, and don't be frightened by anything in your opponent's. That that word frightened there is a kind of a rare Greek word. This is actually the only place that that word is used in the New Testament. And that word uh, frightened there, the King James translates it terrified. And we don't have any other places to compare its use in the New Testament, but in other places in Greek literature, it is used to describe horses stampeding. It describes a panic reaction. And, And it's interesting often fear can be contagious. And and if we begin to panic in the face of persecution or in the face of a trial, that can have a spreading effect amongst other followers of Christ. But, But here's the good news. Not only does fear sometimes become contagious, but so can faith. Faith can be contagious, which is why Paul's going to write in just a couple chapters in chapter four of Philippians, you're going to hear him say, don't be terrified or don't be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, there it is with joy, Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul is reminding the believers that in the face of persecution, if you're going to maintain your joy, don't panic, keep your head. Remember that you are a citizen of heaven, that God is in control. Don't be intimidated. And then he goes on to say this. He says, this is a clear sign to them that would be your opposition or your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So Paul is implying that as a follower of Jesus Christ who's living a life that is worthy of the gospel, uh, it's assumed that there's going to be opposition, that there's going to be opponents. Paul had experienced this from the very beginning of planting the church in Philippi. They, they, they went to war with the believers. They threw him into prison. Paul's currently in prison. And the Philippian followers, as Paul writes this letter, they're under duress. They're under persecution. They're under persecution from those in their community who are um, upset with the Christians for not identifying as Roman citizens, but as citizens of heaven. They are under persecution by others who believe that by them choosing to live a life that is honoring to God, they are making them more aware of their sinfulness and their paganness. And, and what becomes very, very obvious is if you choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ, who is willing to stand firm on your convictions and biblical convictions, and you are willing to push ahead for the sake of the gospel, there's going to be opposition. You are going to have a polarizing effect on those who you come in contact with. Paul will explain this to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians 2. He says this, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance of life to life. Paul is saying, in essence, wherever we go, we have a polarizing effect. To some, we are the aroma of death. But the good news of the gospel is others we will affect positively. We have the aroma of life. So Paul says, if you're going to live a manner worthy of the gospel, You need to stand firm. You need to strive to push the gospel forward and you need to be fearless. So that's the easy part of the message. Here's where it gets tough. Look at what he says in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So the idea there that is, here's how I would say it, suffering. the the gift nobody wants. And, And I need to break this down slowly so we don't miss what Paul is saying. He first says this, it has been granted to you. Okay, that is like it is given to you as a gift. It is given to you as a blessing. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, believing's inward. It's taking the gospel and internalizing it, making it your convictions, making it your identity, making it your worldview, your, your hope. So believing in him is internal, but then he goes on, but it's not only that you would believe in him, but that you would suffer for his sake. This is where the verse at first glance to me seems to go off the rails. I, I, there's so many other things I would rather it say. Shouldn't it read that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also be blessed on account of his name. Like if we're going to follow Jesus, shouldn't we be blessed? Shouldn't We not only believe in him, but have a life of relative ease. Shouldn't we not only believe in him, but have kids that are obedient and love you? We should believe in him and also escape the pain of this world's brokenness. But that's not what it says. It says it's been granted to you, it's been given to you for the sake of Christ, that you don't just believe in him, but that you suffer for his sake. And if we are honest, we have some really messed up algebraic, equations going around in our heads of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. See, see, we think the equation reads this, it's faith plus obedience equals prosperity or faith plus obedience equals health or faith plus obedience equals comfort or faith plus obedience means companionship that I'll never be alone or that faith plus obedience just generally means that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're gonna get a hall pass on suffering. And we are so far off on this that sometimes when we see someone who is suffering, we sometimes assume that God must be punishing them. The disciples fell into this flawed pattern of thinking. It's recorded for us in John chapter nine. John chapter nine, verse one says this. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. So the assumption was that his trial, his infirmity was a result of sin. And it says in verse three that Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. The idea that the faithful follower of Jesus Christ will live a life free from suffering, that may be a popular concept in the evangelical church today, but it is not a biblical concept. So so some of you might be asking, so so David, are you suggesting that God wants his followers to experience suffering? Like, could that be true? And here's what I would say. I'm not suggesting it, because my opinion doesn't matter. It's what the Bible says is true. Paul says to Timothy, his, his protege in Second Timothy 3:12, he says, "Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe persecuted, not could be persecuted, but will be persecuted." He writes to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 2. Paul sends Timothy back to the church, and the purpose of sending him back to the church was to establish and exhort them in their faith. And then he goes, so that no one be moved by the afflictions that the church there was suffering. And then he says this in verse 3, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that you were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, see, he's telling them the church, we're destined for this. You shouldn't be surprised. This was foundational in the teaching of the early church. We read in Acts 14 verses 21 and 22 that Paul, when they had preached the gospel to several cities in Asia Minor and made many disciples, that they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. The purpose of the return visit was to strengthen their souls, the souls of the disciples, it says, encouraging them to continue in their faith, and saying that through many tribulations, through many trials, you must enter the kingdom of God. But by way of example, you would be hard-pressed to look anywhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament and find an example of a person that God uses mightily, any of the patriarchs of the faith or any of the disciples in the New Testament. You would be hard-pressed to find any of those men and women who God used mightily, who didn't endure a season of either persecution or trial, in their life. Some of you are like, well, where was this in the brochure for Christianity? Like, was this buried somewhere in the fine print? Like, I don't remember reading about the fact that when we choose to follow Jesus Christ, we're also choosing to follow a life that's going to involve persecution and suffering. I promise you, it's not buried in the small print. It's in bold type, front page. Jesus and his First sermon, the Sermon on the Mount says this in Matthew 5, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus will say in Luke 14, 27, who does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And in Matthew 10, 38, we read, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So Paul has just explained, what does it mean to live a life that is worthy of the gospel? And Jesus is saying, if you're not willing to suffer on account of my name, you're not worthy of me. If you don't understand this, every time you experience suffering, you'll become unnerved. Many when they suffer or go through a trial, when they get bad medical news or something happens within their family to disrupt the harmony. They immediately become angry at God. They say, this isn't fair because their frustration is born out of an unmet expectation that as a follower of Jesus Christ, we would escape suffering rather than experience suffering. And and if you don't understand this concept as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're gonna struggle to stand firm. You're, You're gonna be more prone to retreat than to strive forward. You're going to find yourself consumed by fear. You're going to lose your Joy. So, so here's a big question. Why would God want his followers to suffer? That's a whole nother sermon, and that would take a long time to answer, but let me just say this. So that we can learn the things that only suffering can teach us. One of the things that suffering teaches us, it exposes us to the awfulness and the brokenness that sin has created in our world. It brings us to our knees and teaches us that we're not in control. It proves to us that God is faithful. It reminds us that he is sufficient and is enough to see us through all the circumstances of life, that he never leaves us or forsakes us. It makes us long and wish for heaven and eternity more when sin will be defeated. And it's that when we suffer, we understand better what Jesus Christ was willing to endure on our behalf. So so there's things that suffering can teach us that God in his grace not only grants us the blessing of being able to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. John Calvin said it this way, a man who was familiar with suffering himself, he says, Oh, if this conviction were fixed in our minds, that persecutions are to be reckoned among God's benefits, what progress would be made in the doctrine of godliness? But more will be found who will order God and his gifts to be gone rather than embrace the cross readily when it is offered to them. He says, woe then to our stupidity. So we're called to live lives that are Worthy of the gospel, that we are to stand firm, that we are to strive forward, that we are to be fearless, and that we are to endure suffering and persecution. Let me just close with this. Here's here's a question Are you engaged in the battle? He says in verse 30, Paul says, Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. So, so Paul is saying, I'm engaged in this persecution right now. Well, well, how is Paul engaged? Well, in some ways he's sidelined. He's sitting in a jail cell. But, but the Paul that we find in his prison cell, chained to his guards, will also be the same Paul who is bragging that the gospel is being proclaimed throughout the prison guard. See. The gospel is still striving forward. He is taking time to pen a letter to the church in Philippi that is also undergoing persecution. And he's saying, stand firm. God is faithful. You are a citizen of heaven. And he's saying for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He is fearless. There is nothing that man can do to Paul to steal his joy. Again, in this season, we need to be reminded, the big idea, joy is not stolen by persecution, but by drifting. And if I were honest with you, going into the 4th of July weekend, as I've watched the news unfold, um, just from our governor and with what's going on with this COVID-19, this hasn't been my favorite week. And uh, we were supposed to be getting the announcement this week that we were heading into phase five, which would allow us to meet again as a church, but the news came out much differently um, this past week, we are kind of stalled in phase four. The trial that we have been enduring for four months is going to continue for an additional season. But I'm reminded that though we are experiencing a trial, Paul and the believers in Philippi were, were under intense persecution. They, they were under the threat of death for their commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. and. We find ourselves in a culture that is quickly shifting, and I'm not looking to sound some alarm, but it is not impossible to see that as followers of Jesus Christ, just like Paul and Timothy warned the church in Thessalonica before the persecution became, they warned them, says, "Today could be coming. We could see scenarios play out that as followers of Jesus Christ, this is going to cost us more than it has in the past. And should that day, if that day were to come, we want to Champion the very things that Paul has championed to the church in Philippi. Live your lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Stand firm, strive forward, be fearless, endure persecution, because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is worth it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, a letter and a conversation that took place 2,000 years ago that somehow seems so relevant to what we're experiencing today. And I would just pray in this season, as our church is somewhat scattered, I pray that um, people would be encouraged, that they wouldn't drift, that they wouldn't allow their walk to be stagnant, that they would be intentional in their efforts to follow you. Father, Give us wisdom even as we navigate this season. Let our focus be on you. May you be the thing that sustains our joy. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the one who modeled for us what it looks like to suffer and to set his hope on you that we pray, amen.